As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Ladies and gentlemen, this podcast truly one of the most unusual ever recorded. Contains dribble, slang, and frank discussion of subject matter which under no circumstances should be heard by small children, persons with a heart condition, or anyone who is upset easily. If you are such a person, or if you're the parent of a very small child in the room, we urge you to switch off your streaming device now. Hello, and let me tell you about Twisted Britain, a podcast on true crime in Britain with a sprinkling of the weird and the macabre. Your hosts are me, Bob Dale. And me, Nadine Royal. We're a couple of friends who met in the pub, and we developed a friendship based on our mutual love of booze, podcasts, and pub quizzes. We met in the Settlement in Stirling, and that's where we record. Each week, we both tell a story of something twisted. One long one, and one short one. And we decide who goes first. Based on the flip of a coin. So if that sounds like something that would tickle your fancy, you can always find us wherever you normally find your podcasts. Just search for Twisted Britain. Thanks. Bye. Hi, I'm Michael, host of the Murder Mile True Crime Podcast, which was nominated as one of the best British true crime podcasts of 2018. It's based on my five-star rated guided walk and features more than 300 untold, unsolved and long-forgotten murders, all set within one square mile of London's West End. So if you love hearing about new cases for the first time, all cases through a fresh pair of ears, and classic cases with a twist, all researched using the original declassified police investigation files, written using first-hand accounts, and recorded using authentic sounds from the murder location itself, then Murder Mile is just for you. Download the Murder Mile True Crime podcast on iTunes, Acast, or your favourite podcast platform every Thursday. Thank you for listening, and stay safe. Hi, Jen. Hey, Kim. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing very, very well. That's a too very? It is a too very. It's a, it's a Sunday. 
It's always a Sunday. <laughs> Who gets up early on Sunday morning to record a podcast besides you and I? I don't know. Other yeah. Sunday morning podcast recorders? Yeah, I guess. Okay. What's going on? Not much. I heard you had an exciting week this week. I did. I am running off and marrying Justin Timberlake. Just oh, so you know. what does um, Jessica Beale say? That poor little homely girl. Mm. She's so homely. She doesn't. She's, she just doesn't know it. Yeah. So really, I'm doing him a favor. I'm just saying. Doing Justin a favor mm-hmm. or doing Jessica? Oh, both, oh, both. both of them. Yeah, I can see that. Get some money, right? I think maybe. I mean, they have a well, child together. Or whatever. The baby at least will get money. Yeah. Uh. So yeah, I went to the Justin Timberlake concert with our friend, our mutual mm-hmm. friend Shelly. Hi, Shelly. Hi, Shelly. We had a really, really good time. It was fun. A little bit too much fun. The, well, good. Uh, you know. That's awesome. People around us were a little angry because we were loud and singing and dancing and stuff. Our seats were terrible. And I was like, this is not going to work for me. So I drug her down and we actually got pretty darn close. Awesome. Mm-hmm. I wanted to make a really quick announcement, too, for anybody that's listening. If you've listened to our very first episodes and you could not hear them because they sucked with audio, we are slowly getting them remastered for sound our um sounds so professional i know doesn't it our friends nico who is the epitome of greatness is remastering them slowly and surely for us so we have the first seven episodes done already so you can go back and take a listen i might go listen and you can hear better because that first one was a brutal they're all pretty bad to be quite honest now compared compared yeah now that he's yeah nico's amazing Oh, yeah. If anybody else needs any kind of remastering done or sound and editing done, I highly suggest Nico at We Talk of Dreams. You can find him at wetalkofdreams.com. Also, he's on Twitter and it's at We Talk of Dreams. He's fantastic. You'll love him. So sweet. So nice. He's our podcast savior, if I may say. We got a few of those. Yeah, just a few. And also, you know, last week we had a great episode written by Chris Maltby about the Sherry Randall murder. Mm -hmm. So awful. She actually does an art class with a group of folks, and she played our podcast. No, she did not. She did. And guess what? What? There was already listeners of us for our podcast in in the office. Yes, in California. And so we want to say a great big hello to Lois, Linda, and Tina. Oh, my gosh. Thank hello, you. ladies. Hi, ladies. Thank you for listening to us. Thank you for taking Chris's class. We can't wait to meet Chris. She's Yay. pretty awesome online. So Yay. anyway, thanks for listening. Chris, we're going to send you some stickers and stuff. So be on the lookout. Be on the lookout. Probably sending them to Chris. So all right. To give to the ladies. To give to the ladies. So what do you have for us today? It's your week. It is my week. Are you going to shock us? Maybe. It's it's something, let me tell you. They all are, but yeah, I but can't wait to hear it. You ready? I'm ready. Give it to me. Jenny. Jen, Jen. Jenny, I got your number. I'm glad that you sung that because that plays right into how I open us. You ready? Eight six seven five three zero oh, nine. So we're both 80s generation kids right we grew up in the 80s most of our formative years were spent in the 80s where we were introduced to cable television we grew up on all those great teen flicks by john hughes such as ferris bueller's day off i still love that movie 16 candles i still love jake ryan 
And The Breakfast Club. Mm-hmm. I mean, you loved Amelia West of us. I did. You loved Rob Lowe. I did love him. And you know what? That's when MTV was actually good. Well, they played music videos. I know. That was Shocking. amazing. So these movies that came out in the 80s, and we would actually go see them mm-hmm. or watch them on cable TV, they were unlike anything before because they gave teens a voice and kids across the United States watched them and realized, hey, these guys are just like us. Mm-hmm. So they had to deal with their unreasonable parents trying to fit in. And of course, the first big crush and the inevitable devastating heartbreak that followed. Or so I hear because I was such a big nerd. I never had a boyfriend in high school. (laughs) Whatever. You were just too shy. Yeah, whatever. I'm still weirdly shy. I'm shy when I shouldn't be shy. And then I'm so not shy when I should be shy. I'm just shy all around. Very quiet, reserved, really scared to talk to people. You are so not. So one of these affluent suburbs of Chicago is a town named Libertyville, okay? Libertyville is located about five miles from Lake Michigan. According to a 2007 census, the median family income was around $127,000. So that's pretty good. Famous people from Libertyville are Marlon Brando and Adelaide Stevenson. So it's well, who's not- Adelaide Stevenson? I knew you were going to ask that. He was the governor and he also ran for president twice, I believe. So he was more politically, yeah, he's a, he's a political Adelaide celebrity. Stevenson. So it's a nice community with some very large homes and little crime. But that all changed in June of 1980. June 5th, a violent storm was pounding down on Libertyville. The lightning and thunder was said to be like nothing anyone had witnessed before. The following morning, when an employee of Ralph's Automotive arrived for work, he immediately sensed something was not quite right. The owner of the gas mart, Bruce Rouse, was a creature of habit and always the first to get there to open the store in the station before anyone else arrived. As the employee was waiting, he decided to call Bruce at home and see if he could just swing by and get a key to the safe so he could go ahead and open the store. Bruce was really a hard worker, always the first one at the store, even at 6 a.m. Okay? Mm-hmm. The Rouse's daughter, 16-year-old Robin Rouse, answered the phone. The employee asked Robin to get her dad. Robin sat the phone down, and moments later, the employee could hear screaming coming from Robin. Robin immediately ran in to check on her 15-year-old little brother named Billy, William, but he goes by Billy. Billy woke up and called 911. Investigators rushed to the equestrian estate, which is located in one of the best areas in all of Libertyville. Technically, the house is on the outskirts. And when this crime happened, the mayor came forward and made sure to establish that it was not actually in Libertyville. Oh, so it was in like the suburbs of. Well, it was just on the outskirts because this is a suburb. But you know what I mean? Okay, gotcha. As they arrive, they see the three Rouse children, 19-year-old Kurt, 16-year-old Robin and Billy sitting in the yard in the front of the house. A swarm of officers and detectives were making their way into the residence and make their way to the master bedroom. Inside, they find Bruce Rouse and his wife, Darlene. Darlene was shot point blank in the head by a shotgun. There was even gunpowder residue under her eye, which indicated that the gun was extremely extremely close. close. I think it's 12 to 24 inches, but they said it was even closer than that. Like it, It rested on her face. Right. How? Horrible. Bruce sustained a shotgun blast to his jaw. He was also bludgeoned several times around the head area 
with the butt of the shotgun. Additionally, he was stabbed seven times Mm. in the heart. You're kidding. A little overkill, don't you think? Investigators commented that it was the worst crime scene that they had ever encountered. There was blood everywhere. From the brutal crime, the way it was committed, there was an immense amount of anger and hatred to the couple. Right. You know, they weren't just killed in their bed easily. So who would want this middle-aged couple to die in such a violent manner while they slept peacefully in their bed? Mm, One of the sons. Bruce and Darlene Rouse were high school sweethearts who married shortly after high school, and they stayed in that same area they grew up. The couple built the sprawling mansion outside of Libertyville in 1975. The house featured an indoor pool. Wow. And even servants' quarters. And he owned a gas station. Bruce had purchased a gas station (laughs) at the age of 21. (laughs) I'm almost psychotic. Which eventually led to several more. So he was working on a little empire here. Right. He also invested in this new upcoming thing, cable television. Oh, wow. So he had some holdings in cable television, and he also had real estate holdings. He wanted those MTVs. All of these businesses were doing quite well for the family of five. And by 1980, Bruce was a self-made millionaire. Nice. Bruce worked really hard. In fact, I think today, you know, he would be, I don't think they had that term in 1980, but a workaholic. Like I said, he has a string of gas stations in and around that area, yet he would be at one of them always to open it up before any employees arrived. Yeah. Which is unusual. You need to do to be a millionaire. That's why I will never be a millionaire. So while Bruce was always working and he was gone a lot, Darlene stayed home and was busy raising the three children. Now, Darlene was quite the social butterfly, and as a wife of the millionaire, I guess, she often had parties with the couples of the same caliber. Mm -hmm. They put on that front to make it look, everything here is great, everybody's perfect, we're great, we're perfect. She was very proud of their home and their standing in the community. Darlene volunteered on several committees and boards, and she, too, was not home very often, especially in the evening. That's kind of sad, though. It's very sad. I mean, it's nice to be around your family, too. The three children did not want for much, and all three went to elite schools. While Bruce was working the days and often nights away, Darlene was left to deal with all the drama that comes from those great teen years. Oh, God, don't we know. Woo-wee! And the boys, her two Mm -hmm. sons, were not making it too easy on her. Bruce and Darlene wanted to make sure their children had an easier life than they did, as all parents do. And sometimes... As is often the case when you have parents that were rather poor growing up and Mm -hmm. then they do well for themselves. So they want their child to do better. That often leads to a little problem and, uh, you know, irresponsibility on the kids' parts, you know, because it's like, why do I need to get a job? You give me money. So we're going to find out about the kids now. 15-year-old William. Billy. Known as Billy. He's the one that made the 911 call, right? Was a bright kid. Yes. He was a bright kid and he had done well in school up until high school. Mm-hmm. Once there, he found himself in a little bit of trouble. Billy and his friends had broken to the school library during the night. Once they were inside, they pulled all the cards out from the card catalog oh. and threw them everywhere. They also dumped all the bookshelves over, causing the books to go everywhere. So he got a little trouble with them. Oh, my gosh. And had to be sent to an alternative school, which is, you know. I could not imagine having to refile all those library cards. That's why I laughed when I read that. I was just like, ugh. Does anybody even know what those are anymore? That's why I laughed. Because yeah. I was like, I don't know. I mean, I'm, libraries still have. Well, no. They probably I don't have know. everything Everything's, on the computer. Yeah. yeah. They probably don't. That's true. Could you imagine? No. Huh. I mean, no wonder I laughed at that. 
Like many children, Billy was acting out trying to get some attention from his often absent parents. When the parents were home, they were more concerned with older brother Kurt. Kurt was quite the athlete in high school. He was a football star, and he was even a state runner-up wrestling champion. Hmm. But after high school, like many teens, he got into a little trouble. He started dabbling in drugs and drinking. You know, he was trying to discover who he was. He had let his hair grow out, and he grew a beard. Shaggy D.A., let me tell you. Long-haired hippie freak? Blonde, yeah. Mm -hmm. He didn't work and often was drinking and playing guitar. So he wasn't going to school either. No. His parents were getting fed up with him and his lack of motivation, and they asked him to leave. Mm. Kurt didn't go too far. In fact, he just went down the hill to the servants' quarters. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Right? It's just like in the backyard. Kurt was just aimless at this point. His parents weren't happy about it. You know, they were also so angry that their three children that they've given everything to, the boys aren't doing so well. 16-year-old Robin, being the only girl, was the apple of her parents' eye, especially Mm -hmm. her dad. She was daddy's little princess. She drove a sports car. She was, in fact, the golden child. Was she the middle kid? Yep. Yep. If she went shopping, Bruce, her daddy, would give her two credit cards Oh, to get whatever she wanted. As police approached the Rouse children outside the house, they could tell that the children were obviously stunned and shocked about their parents' murder. Police were hopeful that the children would be able to give them some insight into what occurred during the nighttime. Kurt stated that his girlfriend had come over that evening. They watched some TV, had pizza. She left around 1130. Kurt said that he then went to bed immediately after she left. Billy, the youngest child, said that he went out with friends and came home went downstairs and started to watch television, which is Beretta reruns. Ah, Robert Blake. He stated that it began to storm so loudly, so violently, that he just decided to go to bed because he was having trouble hearing and it was loud and windy. Cable probably went out. Probably did. (laughs) Robin said that she was at a school dance and she stayed there late into the evening and she got home around 1130. Robin had told police that when she went to bed and fell asleep that night, that the storm was raging and a loud lightning strike had startled her awake, but she was able to go back to sleep. The children can't think of anyone who would want to hurt their popular parents. The children did, however, admit that the family often left the front door unlocked. I'm sure the kids were in shock or disbelief or whatever, but one of the officers even stated that during the interview, one of the kids, and he couldn't remember who, but one of them said to the officer, so I guess this means I'm not going to be able to attend that graduation party I was invited to tonight. Oh. Mm. Uh, that's going to be a no. Yeah, but that's also teenagers. And that's that's why it could be like the shock. And, you know, like you're playing all this out in your mind as it's happening. So right. like you're like, okay, how, how your life changes. So I get that. 15, 16, and 19. All they care about is what, all teenagers care about is how... Anything affects them and their social life. Very Mm self-centered. Before the police could finish talking to the kids, relatives arrived, followed by uh, the dreaded lawyers. Mm -hmm. And the children were then quickly taken away. And then they would start staying with family. They would Mm -hmm. never set foot in the house again. Because it's now a murder house. As police began to wander about the house, they noticed something rather unique. A little peculiar. Peculiar. The house had secret passageways Mm. hidden throughout. There were hidden rooms off of hidden hallways. Okay, so you'd open a door, go down a hallway, and there'd be a new room in there that's not the the thing. Police start to wonder if this is how the murderer was able to get in, move about without being discovered, and get back out. 
They also determine at this point that Darlene's jewelry box and her purse are missing. In the hallway, they make yet another startling discovery. Bruce, who was a big hunter, owned several guns and ammo, and he kept them all in this one closet in the hallway. The guns, along with the ammunition, were all missing. Hmm. You would think with all those secret hideaways that they would hide the guns, too. So authorities began to talk to friends of the couple to get a sense of what they were like, and they had learned that Bruce, ever the businessman, may have maybe made one or two or five bad business Mm -hmm. decisions, maybe, Mm -hmm. and he may be in over his head a little bit. The theory was that maybe he was hit by a business deal gone bad or maybe even a mob hit. Yeah. The investigators are beginning to see that things inside this seemingly perfect home are far from perfect. They are never perfect. The next morning, June 7th, the Rouse children and town wake up to being the lead story in the Chicago Tribune. Blazoned across the page with photos of the children that were crying on the front lawn Ugh. separately, crying and talking to their girlfriend. They're all, you know, the mm-hmm. three giant pictures of the kids and the headline Wealthy suburban couple die by shotgun in hate killing. That was never established. No. While the paper didn't explicitly state that the kids were responsible, the photos with that layout and mm-hmm. the, it all hinted at that. I mean, that's kind of how it played out. That the photos of the kids, and that it was a hate killing with the parents. Could that constitute as slander? No, because they didn't say it. They didn't well, say it. Well, first of all, it, but be they, libel, it's implied. If it's written, it's libel. Right. But no, but it's implied. That's awful. The whispers started to become louder. If all three of the children were home that night, why didn't at least one of them hear the shots? Right. Or did that severe storm that was waging war cover the sounds of the gunfire? The police schedule an interview with the children. Okay, mm-hmm. so they're going to get that follow-up sit-down interview. Then Teens, though, right? More than children. Yeah. yeah. Well, 19, 16, 15. Right. So the police go ahead and set up an interview with them. Mm-hmm. It's going to happen. Bada-boom. Aunt steps in, lawyers them up, of cuts course. it off. There will be no more talking to the children, the only people that were present the night of the murders. The three children take their money that they inherit from their parents, and they continue on with life. Family makes sure the children cannot be contacted by police. But that doesn't mean the children can't contact police. Dun, dun, dun. dun. See what I did there? Yeah. To me, if the aunt would step in and do that, that would make me feel that she thinks the kids might be guilty. In August, Billy Rouse reaches out to police and tells them he would like to see the crime scene photos. Because he wants to help them with the investigation. This is the youngest brother. This is the youngest brother. So he's only 15. Police arrive to talk to Billy, but they tell him the photos are way too graphic. I mean, these are shotgun blasts to the head. The father's missing a jaw. Yeah, nobody needs to see that. The photos are extremely graphic. He should not look at them. Billy tells them that he'll be fine. Yeah, famous last words. Which is what police were hoping for. Because as Billy is going to examine the photos, the police going to examine Billy. Mm -hmm. We're going to watch him looking at the photos. They noticed that Billy would just stare at the photos of his parents, almost like in a trance-like state. He made sure to mention a few things looking at these photos. He pointed out a chair in the corner of the room, and he had said that's where his mom always kept her purse, and there was no purse in the photo. He also mentioned that on the photo of the dresser, that's where she kept her jewelry box. That was also missing. So now police are kind of thinking that's a peculiar to to be dropping all that in and making sure the police know about that. 
But they already knew that everything was missing. They knew by some then. stuff, but he's pointing out exact things. Mm-hmm. So they're starting to wonder if Billy was maybe covering up for somebody. Mm-hmm. But Billy knew that was missing, correct? Yeah, but he was he was establishing. He was making sure they knew, right? right. So he's looking at the photos. He's restating it. He wants them to know that there was a robbery. Yes. Also, at this time, police are stuck. They're in a standstill. But here comes some interesting phone calls. Some tips are going to come in. So a woman calls the police station and she informs them that Bruce had some shady business dealings between the Rouses and the mafia. Her obvious fear shows as she is speaking to police and she's the police start pushing her for details and she hangs up. The police had stated her voice was panicky and she was obviously scared. Now, remember, it's 1980, so there's no caller ID. They can't Mm -mm. find her. They can't. They just have to wait for her. Another strange phone call follows that one. But this one has a name. Kurt Rouse calls the police station and he asks if his mother's car, a 1973 Cadillac that had been impounded, could be released to him. Kurt tells the police that he wants to leave the area for California. He says he wants to get away from everything. He wants to get away from the murders, the surrounding chaos, the area. But he wants his mom's car to do it. Obviously, the shadow over Kurt is now Mm -hmm. getting a little bit darker, a little shady. Bizarre phone calls don't stop there. This is a good one. A local reporter, Mary Laney, who had been working the story for the local news station, receives a phone call from a man who wants to meet her. He says he has some information on the murders. She agrees to meet the stranger, and the stranger tells her that he is a friend, a family friend of the Rouse's. He tells her about a conversation he had had with Darlene just prior to the murders. Darlene had told him that they were having severe trouble with Kurt. Kurt's Mm, the oldest. mm -hmm. And they were at a loss as to what to do. They had even changed the locks on the house to avoid him being able to get in the house. In fact, he continued, Kurt demanded that his mother give him $10,000 cash and he would leave and never return. Darlene, angry, of course, refused. And when she did, Kurt responded by simply stating, You'll be punished for this by the Lord. The man was sobbing and crying hard as he told Mary, the reporter, about this. He feared that Kurt was, in fact, involved in the murders of the couple. He was not the only one to think this. I would think that that's a very strong reason to believe that Kurt was the one that killed them. So the police receive a tip. A woman who was a close friend of Darlene's had told police that the couple were making arrangements to have Kurt cut off financially from the family. The money that each of the children stood to inherit from the death of their parents, each, mm-hmm. is $1.3 million in 1980. Wow, that's, that's a good. good sum. For a 19, a 16, and a 15-year-old? Mm-hmm. Police now believe that they may have a motive for the deaths of Bruce and Darlene. But another shock was about to drop in way of a deputy's grand jury testimony. Two months after the murders were committed, a sheriff's deputy stated that on the day the murders were discovered, Robin, the daughter, had told the deputy that she, in fact, believed Kurt was involved somehow. At the moment Robin told him this, that aunt swooped in and got her, stopped Mm -hmm. the conversation. Four months later in October, a surveyor was walking near the Des Plaines River. He stumbles, literally at what he first thinks is a pole sticking out of the water. But, Jen, we know, just like 
It's never a mannequin. Mm-hmm. It's never a pole. It's never a pole. The pole was actually a shotgun. There you go. The man calls police, who immediately send a dive team into the area to search for more evidence. This is very close to the murder that had happened four months ago in that area. Close to the house? Mm-hmm. The team spends hours looking, and they are rewarded. They find Darlene's purse, fired 16-gauge shotgun shells, and all the missing guns from the Rouse home. Wow. Police are thrilled, and they hope to recover a fingerprint or two. Something. Right. Sadly. Nothing. No, they can't. They can't get anything off of any of that stuff. Since authorities have now located all the missing items from the Rouse murder scene, they are left with only one clear observation. Mm -hmm. This was not a robbery gone bad after all, but a murder that was an inside job and covered up to look like a burglary gone wrong. Police are now left wondering who would have or could have done this to Bruce and Darlene, but no answers are coming in. A year has come and gone, and the investigation's at a standstill. All of the Rouse children have now moved out of state, but police are still hopeful that Robin, one day, will be the one that will shed some new light on the case. Sadly, it's not to be. Three years have now passed, and Robin Rouse has finished high school. She's about to start a new job in Racine, Wisconsin, and she's over the moon. She's thrilled. It's October 1983. It is storming once again. Robin is driving during the night with poor visibility as the rain pelts down on the car. She approaches a curve, and Robin loses control of the car and plows head-on into a tree. Uh. Paramedics arrive, but it's too late. Robin Uh dies on the scene, and with her, anything that she may have known about the gruesome deaths of her parents. And she was young, too, wasn't she? Yeah, she just graduated high school, so she was Uh. like 19. Kurt Rouse, who finally made it to California, has done a 360 in his life. He's actually doing really, really well. He took his money, he bought some land, bought a house. He actually meets a lady, a lady friend. He settles down, they get married, and they have a family. Kurt has grown up. He's doing really well for himself, okay? Mm -hmm. The youngest Rouse, Billy, is the opposite. Billy took all the money he received and he moved to Key West, Florida, Mm. where he continued to drink very heavily. On Halloween 1984, Billy got angry during a chess game. Minutes later, he stabbed his opponent outside the apartment. He ended up serving 60 days in jail and got one year's probation. He didn't kill the person, obviously. After his release, acquaintances say that Rouse tried to settle down, and he did try. He got a Florida driver's license. He married Frances Dobbins after she divorced her first husband. He was able to hold down a construction job, and at age 21, actually bought his first home and paid $100,000 cash for it. Wow. It's just a little little thing. It's cute, though. But I'm guessing Key West is probably expensive, too, right? Key West is very expensive. Well, I can understand him having, like, problems being 15 and... Finding them and all that? Finding his parents and... Neighbors said he spent at least another $75,000 adding on to the house. He installed a glassed-in jacuzzi room, an outdoor deck, second floor connected by a wooden spiral staircase that wrapped around a tree. But his drinking continued, as did fights between the couple. His wife, taking care of one son and pregnant with another, kicked him out for good in 1991. After the divorce, Billy went about doing the same thing that he always does. 
in the past three and a half years of him being down there, the police picked him up for disorderly intoxication, <laughs> selling marijuana, failure to appear before court, dealing in stolen property, resisting arrest, uh, among some other things. Almost makes you wonder what would have happened to him if he would have had a normal childhood. In May 1994, he was arrested for slamming his 1972 Dodge into the chrome wall of a Checkers drive-in restaurant and fleeing the scene. At this point in time, he had lost everything. You know, the wife mm -hmm. kicked him out. He couldn't hold a construction job. He was currently shuffling between a morning job of picking up trash from a Winn-Dixie parking lot, his daily beer pickup at the Walgreens, and his bed, which was a filthy sleeping bag on a roach-infested plywood floor oh. of the derelict houseboat that flew the Skull and Crossbones pirate flag. It is not a houseboat. It is some wood floating. It's, I, I can't even say it's a shed. It's not even a shed. It's like you can see through it. It's oh, not a houseboat. Horrible. Just because he's living in it and it floats, it's not a houseboat. No. On this houseboat, which isn't a houseboat, police said he fell into a rather not nice group of people. And one day they're sitting in their floating houseboat that's not a houseboat. And they decided to plan a bank robbery. Oh. At 9 a.m. September 1st, an armed man entered a Barnett Bank branch, handed a gym bag to the teller and told her to fill it up. Police said he walked out less than a minute later with $5,000 in cash and he bicycled away. <laughs> yeah, we wouldn't do that. Police believe that Billy's role was to ditch the weapon used in the robbery, which was a pellet gun. He uh, dumped that in some seaside muck, is what they said. Mm -hmm. I guess that would be mud. Police suspected that Billy and his boatmates were responsible immediately. One of them rented a water scooter along a nearby water park about the time of the robbery. All of them, usually scrounging money for a half pint of vodka or six pack of beer, ran up a hundred dollar takeout liquor tab that day at their favorite Walgreens. Where'd you get the money from, guys? Hmm. At 9 a.m. September 13th, the same robber that had knocked out over that other bank walked into the same teller at the same Barnett Bank, and this time walked out with $4,900. Minutes later, Detective Bill Larkin picked up Billy outside of his Walgreens. His buddies, including a man identified as the robber, were inside the store. People, here's the deal. If you're going to go rob something, you got, you got to change up your routine. You your little MO. Yeah. And why go drink at a Walgreens? That's expensive, right? You've got like $5,000. Why go drink at a Walgreens? Because you can save that for drugs and other stuff. Billy would later state that every single penny of the money that he got from his parents went to alcohol. Oh. How sad is that? Surprised he was still alive. Seriously. The murder case had gone cold, and it had been several years since anything new had occurred on the case. But September 15th, 1995, do the math, 1980 to 1995, it's 15 years. That would all change. Illinois investigators received a call from the police in Key West, and it was about none other than Billy Ross. Illinois detectives catch a flight to Florida where they want to talk to Billy. Now, they're hoping Billy in this scared, vulnerable state might reveal something about the murder of his parents. They're counting on him being scared and lonely, scared and lonely, mm -hmm. and revealing something, okay? It has now been 15 years since that rainy June night. Right. Without much of a fight, Billy agrees to talk to the detectives. 
and it is immediately clear that Billy is a hot mess <laughs> with the motions pouring out of him. His legs are shaking. They said it seemed like he was going to vomit. Okay. The detectives look at him. They ask him, are you okay? And what he said next was very telling. Billy said, yes, I am okay. I'm just having a hard time dealing with it. I'd just like a night to think about it before I talk to you guys. He then asked to return to his cell. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli. I guess. Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is now October 13th, 1995. Billy Rouse sits down with the detectives and begins to discuss something he has not mentioned to another living person in 15 years, the murders of Bruce and Darlene Rouse. For the first time, Billy shares details of exactly what happened on that fateful night during a 37-minute interview. And, as expected, things were not as they seemed. Mm -hmm. I started flying around with 22. I don't know why. I thought I was a legal gun. I got him 16 days to get in the locked around the house. I said, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. I sat there for about 10 minutes looking at it. And what was going through your mind? How I should do it. How you should kill your mom? Or You said before you really didn't want to kill your dad. No, I didn't want to. Okay. That's what I said. I had the knife at first. You thought it would be quieter and your, maybe uh -huh. your dad wouldn't wait? Yeah. And then, what did you say? You thought it would be too slow also? Yeah. Okay, go ahead. So what did you do then? Well, I walked in the room, took the 16 gauge, put it up to her head. I don't remember pulling it, but the trigger went off. Okay. Then what did you do then? But the gas sat up real quick. Trigger went off again. It wasn't that good of a shot. It just grazed him more or less. I ran around the other side and started hitting him with the blood of the gun. And, and I, don't, I don't know how many times I had my head, but he, that didn't work. He was still... And I didn't want him, I didn't want him misery. So I got the knife and I stabbed him and then went until he quit moving. You can stupid so much time by your own parents. I decided I was going to get rid of them. So I walked in the room, took the 16 gauge, put it up to her head. And the trigger went off. Because I could never do anything right. That's the way they put it off to me. I could never do nothing right. My mom. She looked at me and she goes, oh, you know, it's a glossy again, I say. And she goes, you can smoke a pot. And I said, no, I want to smoke a pot. She goes, you smell like liquor. I said, yeah, what about it? And she says, yeah, don't worry about it. You're going to be shipped off the military school. I'm just over it. You're going to be just like My dad sat up real quick, looked at me, trigger went off again. It wasn't that good of a shot. I ran around the other side, started hitting me with 
Billy stated that after a night of drinking and smoking weed with his friends, he came home to find his mother waiting for him. She approached Billy, demanding to see his eyes. She told him they were glassy and asked him if he had been smoking pot. Billy said no. She then said, you smell like alcohol. Billy challenged her and he said, yeah, what about it? Darlene told Billy not to worry about it. Because you're being shipped off to military school in the morning. Oh, my word. And I am just over it. How many mothers? You are going to be just like your fucking brother. You fucking moron. Oh, Brother nice. means Kurt. Right. Billy said that his mom then went to bed. But he stayed up. And he started drinking whiskey. His dad's whiskey. And eating mushrooms. Uh, the magic mushroom. Really? Mm. So he sits there. The anger's just building. He's stewing. He's getting angrier. And angrier. It's always good to do hallucinogens when you're not in the right mindset. Billy goes to the closet and he gets a shotgun and loads it. He then stops by the kitchen to get a knife. He opened his parents' door and crept into the room. The thunder and lightning were rumbling heavy and he knew it would protect the sound of the gun going off. He walked up to his mother and placed the shotgun between his mother's eyes and pulled oh. the trigger. As the shot was fired, it broke up his father. Bruce. Bruce was startled awake. Billy then immediately lifted up the gun, pointed it to his father, and fired. He noticed that his dad was still moving. Billy then went over to his father and began hitting him with the butt of the gun, but his father was still alive and jerking. Billy then took a knife and began stabbing him until he moved no longer, which was seven times in the heart. With the murders now complete and in his drug-induced stupor, he was still smart enough to know that he needed to make it look as if somebody had broken in and attempted a robbery. Billy took his mother's jewelry box and purse. He then took all of the guns, loaded them, and packed them into his father's car, which he drove to the Des Plaines River. He dumped everything into the river. Billy then decided he was going to flee. He was just going right. to take the car and keep going. But then he changed his mind because he knew it would make him look guilty. So he turned his father's car around, went back home, climbed into bed, and fell asleep. What? Unreal. The callousness of being able to sleep no. is crazy, right? But then you, you add on to that about him letting his older brother be blamed for all the murders for years. Right. Like the whole town still whispered about that. Of and course. And let it go. Like Up until now, I pretty much was thinking that, well, Kurt, Kurt did it. Kurt did it. Mm-hmm. July 31st, 1996, the murder trial of Billy Rouse begins. The prosecution states that Billy's confession, showing not only his admission, but offering lots of details that had never been heard before, was their biggest win. Next up on the stand is Billy's older brother, Kurt. Now, Kurt was very hesitant. He did not want to come back to the area because they, 15 years, he was like the town boogeyman. They all thought he did it and he didn't want to deal with that. He also did not want to testify against his brother. He was extremely hurt by what his brother did to him. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, like from a transcript that I saw, it he's still holding out hope that his brother didn't do it. Right. You know, he, he said something like, I'm going to go there. I'm going to support him. I'm not so sure he did it, but I know I did not do it. Right. He did add that. 
When Kurt entered the courtroom, he walked over and put his hand on Billy's shoulder. It had been 10 years since the two had even seen each other. The defense places the blame on Kurt, but Kurt's tearful testimony only helped the prosecution team. During his testimony, Kurt sees a picture of his sister. Mm-hmm. He grabs the photo, brings it to his chest, and begins sobbing uncontrollably. Aww. This gave the jury insight into what kind of person Kurt was. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think it really ensured that he didn't have the heart to do it. He mm-hmm. was kind of a hippie. Right. You know? And at this time, he had hair, blonde hair, like down to his waist. And right. Down. After only eight hours of deliberation, Billy Ross is convicted on two counts of murder. Billy doesn't flinch, cry, or even move as the verdict is being read. He's sentenced to 80 years in prison for the murders of his mother and father. Billy had stated that he had no regrets whatsoever about killing his mother. It was all his mother. Yeah. And, you know, from the from the murder scene, I thought for sure it, the person was after the dad because that was so brutal. He really didn't even want to kill his dad. The anger was all towards his mother. Well, I was wondering why he didn't go after the father first because you would usually try to kill. But he's mad at his mom. Right. It was about his mom. Right. But you would usually try to kill the person that's the biggest threat first to get them out of the way. You would if you're just a normal killer. However, he's angry. Exactly. So that's why it's not. But he was sorry that he had to kill his dad. He also stated that he had swung by the kitchen to pick up that knife because he thought he would just use the knife on his dad. Which is so demented in thinking, right? You're 15, but you're like, well, I'm going to kill them. But the knife is going to be less brutal than the shotgun blast. But when his dad uh. woke up, he had to, you know, kill him with the gun. Uh. The other thing Billy said he was sorry for was doing all this to his sister and that it really messed her up. Mm-hmm. And it did. I didn't get into all that, but she became really despondent, depressed. I mean, obviously, she just well, was not the same, right? And she was the one. She was the golden child. She was their favorite. The she only was the girl. one that found them. Oh, it would be horrifying. Yeah. But the story doesn't end there, Jen. Mm. Never does, Camille. Never does. As for the beautiful house that was supposed to be filled with love and laughter of a growing family, it too has its own bizarre ending. Oh, really? And history, I guess. Amityville. The day the Rouse children moved out of the house, which was June 6th, they never returned. Mm-hmm. Ever. Other people... Should have followed their lead, but did not. The house sat vacant from June 6th until May 1981, so it's Mm -hmm. about a year. The Rouse estate decided that they needed to hire a security firm to watch the house. Security guards were hired to monitor the house and the grounds 24 hours a day. Hmm. They would walk the property and its perimeter. One night, a guard was walking through the house when he was knocked on the head by someone. He collapsed to the ground and was knocked unconscious. The police and media stated that the young man was attacked by, quote, an unseen, unknown, and unheard assailant. No one had ever been caught for that crime. Nobody ever, he made it. He was fine. He just got knocked out. December 1981, the house was purchased by a Martin DeFore. DeFore was a businessman, an entrepreneur who owned a few upscale nightclubs with fine dining and new dancing. Oh, good. Hey. While he stayed in the house for a while, the house, like I said, was rather large and its upkeep proved to be too much for Mm -hmm. him. So he decided to lease the house to a partner of his. You want to guess what his partner did for a living? Danced. Out of Chicago. Mob. Strip clubs. Bada bing, bada boom, girl. 
Yes, the so new he renter was in waste management. Just happened to be exactly just happened to be part of the Chicago mob. So of course the house is not just a house now. Mm-hmm. Well, that's perfect with all the secret passageways and perfect illegal high stakes gambling and ladies of the night were regular fixtures at the house. In fact, the mob spent fifty thousand dollars to convert it to a working casino. Oh wow. The street boss of the crew working the casino house was Rocco Infeliz. Infeliz, just like Al Capone, had both been from Chicago, and they each had also been in the outfit since they were very young. The outfit's what the cool people call the mob Mm -hmm. in Chicago, when you're in the know like me. Mm -hmm. You know, I love that mob stuff. He started at the bottom and worked his way to the top. One of the things that Infeliz was known for his ability to walk in and just light up a room. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> That's your little Josh. That's uh, my joke, right? Josh Mankiewicz. Uh, he was, so Infelice was known for being brutally violent and everyone knew you do not cross him. Right. Even if you're Infelice or a leather jacket, it doesn't, you do not cross him. Could be in Italy. Anywhere. You could be across the street and you don't cross him. In May, 1982, Infelice sets his sights on one of the members of working with the crew. The man was named Robert Plummer, and Infelice had begun to suspect that Plummer was a rat. He was Nothing an informant worse. to the police. As we all know, this is the worst thing you can do. To, is to have get. a rat in your plumbing. Infelice demanded that one of his enforcers go to retrieve Plummer, bring him to the house, and, oh, Tell him not to tell a soul he was coming to the house. Infelice then tells the enforcer to bring Plummer up to the second floor of the home. He should then turn around and go away immediately and don't look back. The enforcer did as he was told. Days later, Robert Plummer's decomposing body was found in his wife's trunk in a nearby town. She probably needed to clean that out. Law enforcement were able to indict Infelice on several charges, including racketeering. He was sentenced to 63 years in prison. Wow. This is all in that house. You think we're done? Really? Ten years later, the house was purchased by Andrew Janice and his wife. They were really excited to move in, and they got it for an extremely good price. And I'm dying to know how much they paid. Because, like, that one guy that owned the strip clubs couldn't afford to run it. So this is, like, a married couple. Right. And I'm sure. Well, I'm sure. Yeah. The couple remained there about 10 years, and they were busy raising a family in the home. July 25th, 2002, a neighbor, girl, she was a teenager, was asleep on the couch when she noticed some weird flickering lighting coming from the window. She got up to investigate. She immediately ran and called 911 to report that the home was covered in flames, and that four people lived inside the home. The Janice family. They had a boy and a girl. Fire trucks raced to the scene, but it was a total loss. The Janice family had luckily escaped the fate that some others had endured in that home. They were out of town on vacation. Oh, thank goodness. While the fire authorities deemed it not to be arson, they could not find a cause for the devastating fire. There was nothing left but a charred foundation. The townspeople petitioned, gladly, I'm Mm -hmm. sure, to get the house demolished. Today, it is an empty plot of land with quite a bloody history and more than a few secrets. Ooh, we should write a book about that. 
So anyway, the house had... I, it was almost I, cursed or something. Crazy, right? It's amazing. Great story. You totally had me. I thought it was going to be Kurt all along. Yeah. I really did. Right? Well, they did. They Everybody, everybody thought. thought it was Kurt. But no, from the get-go, when you said that they were killed in bed, I immediately thought it was Kurt. That's why I thought Amityville Horror mm-hmm. that was, was the, the oldest son. Yeah. yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. The youngest son did it, huh? No wonder why he had such a guilty 15, conscience. Yeah. That's conscience. Like the, that's why you, uh, conscience. That's con why you, uh, you realize, like, the drinking. Yeah. Right, you know? Drinking. And then, oh, and then I'm the surprised. daughter dying. So really, Kurt, the oldest one, the one that everybody thought did it, right? They, they put him to hell thinking he was the evil one. The only one that made it out. The daughter that's, died. The other one's in jail. Parents that's are so murdered. awful. Poor Kurt. Is he's, I'm assuming he's still alive and... Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's not. Well, 1980, he was 19, so he's 20 years older. No, that's not right. He's 11 years older than us. No, that's not right either. I can't. No, he's that. he's nine years older than we are. He's 29. Mm-hmm. Okay, or something like that. I got you. Maybe we're off by a couple of years. Wow, amazing. Never heard of that, and that's so close to us too. Yeah, Chicago. but we were so young when that happened. Uh, but but amazing. it didn't get solved for 15 years. So. No, I know. Like, I'm glad that the police saw that opportunity to catch him when he was weak. Mm-hmm. But to sit with that for 15 years. Oh, he obviously didn't do it very well. I mean, I'm surprised he, he was still alive. But like his letting the brother take the blame, the whole town talking about it when all along it was you. At first, there was they thought that all three of the kids had something to do with it. Right. And from the newspaper. Right? And then the fact that the family sweeped in and took him and wouldn't let him talk to anybody. Which you mentioned earlier is a little strange. Very strange. I mean, I can understand wanting to protect them from... I guess, you know, just like... And we, I'm, you should always get a lawyer, but it always looks so sketchy when you do that. They didn't even allow them to talk to him at all, though. Not right. even with the lawyer present. Right. That's my case. Oh, no, that was really good mm-hmm. for a murder case. Is, I mean, people, I think people understand when we say it's really good. It, Don't it's, you? It's it's Because they're listening to true crime, so obviously they're into true crime like we are. Mm-hmm. So it's a really good, meaning fascinating. Well, at the time, story Billy was only when he killed his parents. He was only four years older than we are. Right, were in 1980. Right, being 15 and killing my parents, and he hated his mom. And you know, there's a lot of stuff in there that like she was abusive to him a little bit, mm-hmm. mad at him. She was taking her anger for Kurt mm-hmm. out on him and mm-hmm. she didn't want him to turn out like Kurt. Exactly. But she was my mom used to threaten to send my brother to military school. All oh, girls never go to military school. They we would go to a convent. Oh god, it's even worse. I'd rather go to military we school. We weren't religious so that wouldn't have been a threat, but no, my brother would come home late or whatever and I could remember just waking up going, I'm going to send you to a military school if you don't. Like really? Yeah, like my brother's in the military school. I used school. to tell him that when he was little. And he, I don't want to go to the pituitary school. <laughs> the pituitary school. Amazing. Yeah, that he was totally ate up with that alcohol, too. Yeah. He doesn't regret killing his mom. After all those years, too. Nope. So you wonder what all actually went into that house, what she actually mm-hmm. said to him to make him that angry. Yeah, he... he he had stated that he just, like, even at that young age, there was nights that he wouldn't come home because he didn't want to deal with them. He didn't want to deal with her yelling at him about drugs uh, and drinking and all that stuff. Unreal. I can't imagine. No matter what people post on social media, how people present themselves in life, nobody is 100% happy. It's true. 
All right, Jen, that's all I got. What you got? Anything? Yeah, tell the good people where they can find us. You can find us on Twitter. You can find us on Stitcher. You can find us on Podbean. Twitter, we are at Our True Crime Pod. You can email us at Our True Crime Podcast at gmail.com. Leave us a review on iTunes. I did have somebody ask us why everybody always says iTunes. As far as we know, it's the only place that you can leave reviews that we will see. You can leave a review on Podbean. You can leave a review on Podbean and we will see it. But if you leave a, if and you on can. YouTube. Remember the one guy said that the sound was terrible, but we sounded cute. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Thanks, buddy. You can leave us reviews there, but like other podcatchers like Google Play, we don't see the Google Play ones. If you can leave it on there. I guess, though, if you have an Android phone, you can't get iTunes. Is that correct? Well, you can you can download iTunes if you have a laptop or a computer. Oh, okay. You can download iTunes but not then, on your phone. but not on your phone. Okay, so that's what he meant. Apple products are only like 11% of yeah. phone sales, but everybody says iTunes. Yeah, they do. He's right. And he is right. No. But iTunes, as far as I know, are the only place that you can leave reviews that everybody most can podcasters can see. Yeah, that's true. So, and if really, if you don't get your podcast on Apple or on iTunes, it doesn't go to iCatcher or it doesn't go to Podcatchers. Basically, I'm talking out of my ass right now because I really don't know, right, but that's as best as I can. Great. Yeah, that's as best as I can figure out. So anyway, leave us a review only if you're nice. If not. No, you can leave us a mean one. You can. We just use it to our advantage. So it's more fodder for us. So anyway, I think that's about it. We'll see you next week. We will. We got a good one coming up next week if I can get it finished. All right. It's going to be a long one. uh, Lock your doors. Keep passing by those open windows. Uh, Bye-bye. Love ya. Hi, Shelly. Not that she listens. She does once in a while, but she's like, I'm way behind. And I'm like, "Mm, did you start it? (laughs) She's on the second episode. Yeah. Uh, According to a 2007 census, the median family. Say that again. Dang it. That's not a mess up. It's not. Mm -mm. Sorry, Nico. Marlon Brando. Brando. (laughs) See, I'm already messing up. Okay, I can't. June 5th, a violent. Go ahead. What are you going to say? I was going to say I didn't recognize him because you didn't put the the second behind it. I would have known him if you would have said Adelaide Stevenson, the second. No, you wouldn't. I know. <laughs> okay. I was like, That's why saying? I quit because it was the joke had already passed. So. <laughs> Just. Right. Ready? This uh-huh. is the good part. This is where you hear stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I hear stuff? I mean, important stuff. Oh, okay. And this is where I, the story actually starts. Yes. Instead of the. Dribble and slang that you used beforehand. I love me some dribble and slang, and I'm putting some in here, too. You ready? They called you ladies. Yeah. Okay. All right. That's a Robin Rouse. Robin Rouse. Rock around. Robin Rouse. Rock, rock, That's rock, horrible alliteration. Okay. Sorry. <clears throat> Cut that out. And go. I was going to say something about you like a good pounding, too, but that went too quickly. <laughs> I couldn't do it. I'm not quick this morning. I do. But I don't know what I um, Who doesn't? As they arrive, they see the Fucking three Adelaide Stevenson, junior. the second. Junior. No, he's no junior. Oh, he's oh, a second. second. Sorry. Always watch those people with numbers behind their names. He was kind of cute. I just, it just seems weird saying, but wouldn't you say handle?
But I know that's what you say because you say the butt of a pistol, but whatever. Mm-hmm. Okay. You can cut that out. People yeah. just like to say butt. That's why I said it sounds weird. Mm-hmm. With the ass of the shotgun. Yeah. With the buttocks of the shotgun. You load it into the butthole. You load the, <laughs> you load the shotgun. And, okay, sorry. Or the sh- whatever. So, like many children. No, don't. Stop saying. Cut out so, Nico. I hate that word and I say it all the time. And um. Cut up so and um. And like. Like many children. <laughs> Except that like. <laughs> Mama chi- didn't rain no dummy. She did, but that's okay. The Yours children. Did. You'll fight. Catch me outside. Catch me outside. How about that? He murdered somebody, didn't he? No, because he was not found guilty. But it was What was his name? Bonnie Lee Bakley was the girl that she was kind of a con woman. She was playing Christian Brando, which was Marlon Brando's mm-hmm. son. So she had like these several ce- celebrities and she would play them. And it was game. Robert Blake yes. who did Beretta. Yes. yes. We watch Beretta constantly. And Beretta, uh, Robert Blake was known as, you know, where he came from, right? It's really sad, actually. Um, Mickey Mouse? Close. No. Uh, Close. Uh, Almost. Yeah, come on. Mask- not Musketeers. Nope. Uh, hold on, hold before, on. Before, before. Uh, our Black gang. Our yes. gang. Our yes. gang. Yeah. Yes. Our gang. Little Rascals. It was really sad. Like, he was such a cute little boy. And then he was also in Cold Blood. Don't forget that. That was the, his big comebacks was right. in Cold Blood. And then after that, Beretta. We watched was, Beretta, Columbo. Beretta had the cockatiel, right? Yes. Yeah. Kojak. Robert Blake was a child actor, and he was kind of forced to do it to, mm-hmm. to pay for his family. Fuckers. So, yeah, it was insane. It was, it's a sad story. Maybe you should do that one, Camille. Bonnie Lee Blakely or mm-hmm. him. Well, she's, yeah, I don't know, whatever. Okay. They, they sh- were whisked yeah, whisk. away. Yeah, what did I say? Whisked. What? They were whisked away. <laughs> they whisked away. It was so wild. Wild. Oh, yeah. You so would have a crush on him. I told you. And he's a hippie. Like a hippie dippy, and he's like sweet. He's and the- he's messed up. Yeah, so, yeah, you would yeah, totally fall in. I know, right? I can save him. I, I can save him. <laughs> he just needs my love and he'll be fine. I know. Ugh. Okay. You're a mess. You know, right? Like my boyfriend. Mm-hmm. Just kidding. Justin Timberlake is involved in this. I know, right? Was he even born in 1980? Mm, yeah, I think so. He's 30. No, maybe not. There's <laughs> math. 36, I think. Yeah. All right. <clears throat> and that's how you say it. Desk planes. Yes. Right. Because I was like, it has to be like day plane. Or you know, de pair. Yeah. De pair. No. Desk planes. Desk planes. Desk planes, boss. <laughs> Welcome to Fantasy Island. Desk planes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I gotta say that again. I'm Robin Ross. Robin Ross. Woo, woo. Robin Ross. Okay, sorry. That's an awful name. I mean, it was 1980. I, I don't even think that song was out yet, was it? Yeah, Rock and Robin. Yeah, that was. Oh, that was. Yeah, I was thinking about the Michael Jackson. That was 60. Version. Sorry. Okay, ready? Are you here? Are my yeah, kids what is fighting? That? I don't know if they're fighting or if that's a. No, it's not the dog. You wanna go check on them real quick? Damn kids. You no, go check I'm on? gonna let them bleed it out. I mean. My children are the future. Destitute. Yeah, living in squalor. Destitute. That's what I said. Destitute. Now you said destitute. Hey, dude. Destitute. <sighs> All right, Rico. Here, Rico. Nico. <laughs> sorry. I'm because I'm Rouse. Rico. Get it? I can't. And I keep thinking that I'm saying it wrong because I'm all. Uh, 
uh, self-conscious about the shink, shek murders, <laughs> whatever. Schnick. Billy had stated that he had no work wet, no work wet whatsoever. Wesley Wabbit, I'm going to get him. His only work wet was Wabbit Walsh. <laughs> Actually, it is. Oh, really? <laughs> oh, that she had to find him. The house sat vacant. Vacant. <laughs> God dang it. You know, right there, right there, the house, that bank right there on that hill. And I was just like, look at that house. That's a vacant house over there. We got to do something about that. Okay, Ray. Mm-hmm. DeFore. DeFore? DeFore. Not DeFoe. No. DeFore. DeFore. Not DeFive. <laughs> Denver, I'm almost done. Sorry. Okay? Whips me. Had been in the outfit. That's what they call the mob when you're in the know, right? The outfit. Is he in a fleece outfit? <laughs> they had both been... In Felice. See, that's why I like that. His names. I hate you. Put it to the bloopers. Put it in Felice. Now that's why I I, I clip because I yell at you because you make these little snarky things and I'm trying to be all serious, right? And then I laugh and then I scream at you and then it gets really loud. So I'm sorry, Nico. That is the perfect abuser excuse, Camille. Police were able to indict in Felice. (laughs) (laughs) Police in Felice. Police and Felice. Oh, Lord. Okay. <laughs> Soon after, 